The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What do people do when the world around them changes? When the northern states went to war in 1861, you could volunteer to fight if you were male and of the right age. Eventually, 40% of the eligible men in the north did so. But what about the 60% who didn't? How were they supposed to behave? And what about women who could not go? Who set the cultural expectations for people who stayed home during the war? And what were those expectations? The answers, according to our guest tonight, are not what you might think. We'll talk with J. Matthew Gallman, author of Defining Duty in the Civil War, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Home Front. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where we come to you every week, unless we're at a different location, but usually here, A320 on the third floor of Brewster, East Carolina University, Greenville, North Carolina, but not representing the university, not speaking for the university, or doing anything other than talking for ourselves, as we do every week. Our guests will do the same. Well, it is 
a overly humid and moist and hot week here in Greenville at the end of September 2015. Should be autumn, but it's not acting like it yet. It is autumn in the sense that football is back on, and the ECU Pirates came up with a stunning come-from-behind victory last week against Virginia Tech, uh, beating the uh, an ACC team for the sixth time in a row. Pirates are looking good. My alma mater, University of Michigan, showed that uh, things are back the way they used to be in the good old days of the Big Two, Little Eight, when we beat everyone relentlessly in the first quarter and then could enjoy doing the wave for three quarters, and Ohio State would do the same to their hapless opponent the way God intended it until the two of us play for the real game at the end of the year. Uh, U of M's 31 nothing shutout over a ranked team made us think maybe we're getting back to that. In fact, last weekend was so good at college football, I decided to give up the sport altogether because I don't see how we could do any better than those two games. And to answer the question, you're all on tenterhooks about Greenville FC rained out in local recreational soccer. So no news on that front. There was other news, though, in Greenville last week, which I do want to share with you and uh, do something really unprecedented here on Civil War Talk Radio. Last week, the University Board of Trustees voted to go ahead with a project that I've mentioned a few times, uh, building a uh, history facility, a, an exhibit. Uh, it's really not quite fully defined what it's going to be. They're using the working name Heritage Hall for it, which has its own problems as in terms of connotations of that word, but I can live with it. Um, it is going to be uh, built in as part of a new student services building, it will take a couple of years to build. Uh, and the current plan now is to raise money for this project, which normally is the job of the fundraising arm of the university, its foundation, not something I'd be sharing with you here. But this is a little bit different. Uh, I have not asked you, the listeners, uh, for your cash except for my book and miscellany fund over the past 12 years, and I appreciate very much the donations uh, that we've gotten for that. But this is something different. Uh, I am asking you for your financial support of the Heritage Hall project, and I'll explain why. Because something about the history of this university is of interest to the pirate nation, but uh, honestly, why would you want to donate to that? You've got your own alma mater or your own interests. Uh, there's no real reason you should. However, in this case, the whole project grew out of the university's revisitation of uh, a particular building name, named for a governor from early in the 20th century of pronounced white supremacist views. ECU is not alone in this. Uh, the state of South Carolina has revisited its use of the Confederate battle flag. Uh, the state of North Carolina has announced it will change its representative in Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. Uh, in the near future, which means uh, they'll be removing the statue of Governor uh, Charles B. Aycock, who is the, the name on the building in question here in Greenville. 
And uh, the ECU has been ahead of, on, on that front. Other universities in North Carolina have been changing buildings named for, uh, for ACOC and other figures from that era. I understand it's political. I understand there's controversy involved, but I think it does reflect the better angels of our nature, and it reflects the way the historical tide is moving, and I think it's an appropriate thing for us to do. In the current attempt to uh, do this here on our campus, the decision was made we would build Heritage Hall as a way to more accurately study Governor Acock. His name doesn't disappear from campus. It goes from being a an icon that we don't think about to uh, an exhibit in a museum where we can reflect on the good and bad that he, like any other human being, has done. The idea that we should raise money before taking the name off the building is a tactic employed by those resisting this movement. And they said uh, they challenged the board to raise a certain amount of money by December of 2015 or the name shouldn't be taken off of the current building until that happens. So I'm asking you to join me in contributing to this project, uh, partly because that kind of tactic is not the way to get to, to carry on business, uh, partly because supporting this project will demonstrate the importance of public history here at East Carolina University, and by extension at other places. And finally, uh, and here's the self-interest part. This, the reaction of listeners to this, the support of an ECU project will be a demonstration to the administration of this university that Civil War Talk Radio has some value, that its listeners recognize they get some value from it, and they're willing to contribute something in return for the value they receive. So I'm asking you to come up with a modest amount, say one tenth of one percent of the amount we need to raise. If I've done the math right, that's $30 out of the 300000 we need to come up with in the next few months. And if you can do that, you can send it to the Civil War uh, book front through the PayPal donation button on the Impediments of War website. But if you do that, it's still just a donation to me. It's not deductible. If you want to make a, a more substantial gift, if you want to make it tax-deductible, you can contact ECU's fundraiser. His name is Chris Dibba, D-Y-B-A. His email is dyba at ecu.edu. Don't go through the university uh, website. They, they don't have a place to put your donation specifically toward this project. Uh, but contact Chris Dibba directly, dyba at ecu.edu. Uh, with your donation, he'll get it set up, and that would be a 501c3 or whatever it is, uh, tax-deductible donation. Chris is a good guy, by the way. He points out his grandmother lives next door to Kenneth No, a history professor at, university, at uh, Auburn University, uh, who we've had on the show a couple of times. So uh, Chris feels he has a connection to us here at Civil War Talk Radio. But contact him, dyba at ecu.edu to make a tax-deductible contribution to Heritage Hall, or send your money right to the show. As always, anything I get between now and December will be donated to this, and I will be adding my own funds to that as well. And I would like to be able to show that that, uh, you can't stop uh, a good idea just by trying to come up with tactics like, oh, we need money first. Well, back to 1860s history, enough 19th 
late 19th century history. We'll have some interesting guests coming up on the show in the next few weeks. Betty Brennan, president of Taylor Studios, uh, who have designed exhibits for various Civil War and Lincoln-related museums, will be on next week. After that, we'll have Resisting Sherman, a Confederate Surgeon's Journal and the Civil War in the Carolinas. Thomas Hurd Robertson, Jr. is the editor of that. And a guest to be named later on the 21st, looking into the future beyond that, Wade Sokolowski returns to the show on the 28th. Chris Samito returns to the show on November 4th. And you can find out about all these from the Facebook page for Impediments of War. Well, on to the show. We've talked enough about the present, taking too much time from our guest. He is J. Matthew Gallman, author of a really uh, intriguing book, Defining Duty in the Civil War, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Home Front. Matt, are you there? Here, yes. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for sitting through the long introduction. Um, delighted to have you here uh, on the show. Say, uh, share a few words, if you would, about your, your background, uh, what your day job is, and uh, how you got got to writing about the Civil War. Well, let's see. I'm actually from North Carolina. I'm from Chapel Hill. Um, I um, I suppose I first got interested in the Civil War in a fairly serious way in college. I took the uh, the undergraduate course on the war with James McPherson when I was a, I think, a freshman. Um, and I and I ended up um, becoming a Civil War historian about halfway through graduate school. I began life as a colonial historian and made the shift. After about three years, I've been working on the Civil War home front. And so since then, I've, I wrote a book about Philadelphia during the war, so I put a home front urban study, and I wrote a general history of the northern home front. And then I did a comparison of Philadelphia and Liverpool during the Irish famine, so I left the Civil War behind. And then I did a, a book about... Uh, a, a, popular speaker, Anna Dickinson, who became famous during the war and remained famous into the 70s and 80s. And then now I'm back to the war with um, Defining Duty, uh, back to the home front. So, well, getting started with James McPherson is a pretty good, pretty good way to, to get into it, I would say. Oh, yeah. I, actually, I just saw him last weekend in Los Angeles, and oh. he, he's still doing great. Uh, that's that's good to hear. He's been a guest on the show, I don't know, three or four times. I think he might have the record. Uh, might be tied with Harold Holt. Harold Holzer has, has a lot of appearances, too. Harold is always uh, a good one to, to be out yeah, front. He was in Los Angeles, too. I saw him as well. Okay, uh, well, there's the whole group. I should have gone with you guys. Uh, so, in this book, you make an, a really interesting argument. If I were going to... Uh, abbreviate it uh, for anyone, I would say to, you could shorten to the phrase how are you going to act? Uh, mm-hmm. What is it? How do what do people in the North do? Is, is that a fair uh, well, it's not fair to shorten your work to four words but um, I, I wasn't quite sure what the book would be about and, and you address this fascinating question of what do people do? They've never lived through a giant civil war. No one has any right. precedent. They don't know what to do. How do they find out what to do? Well, the way I kind of set, set it up is, as you say, that, uh, sort of fact one is that 
they don't really have a good precedent. Um, not only is the American Revolution especially smaller, but by the time the Civil War comes around, the American Revolution is pretty distant in, in memory. And so they don't have an obvious set of rules in terms of how to behave. And it's pretty clear from the get-go that not everyone has exactly the same understanding. And so my, my crucial starting point is that Americans in the 19th century, especially the mid-19th century, are really very used to turning to publications for advice on how to do things. This is a heyday of etiquette manuals, of advice manuals of all sorts, of um, guides to parenting, of guides to domesticity for, for young mothers. Um, there's, there's wonderful guides to, uh, for people who want to visit cities, young men's guides to working, going to cities, and, and on and on and on and on. And I think that what happens is when the war begins, it's quite natural for people to turn to things they're reading for hints on how they should behave. And some of them are fiction, short stories, novels, um, cartoons, a lot of satire. Some are more what I would call distinctly prescriptive. Uh, people get sermons and publish them. People write editorials and publish them. Um, and these all kind of get all thrown into the hopper. Hundreds and hundreds of separate statements that help shape what the North collectively begins to believe people should do. I call it the war culture. And it's it, this is distinct from politics. Uh, other people have analyzed the pamphlets written during the war that are, are partisan. Uh, you're not looking at uh, people being advised how to vote or, or even you know or what they should think politically about the war, but more about what is... What should they do? What is their role? What is their duty uh, during wartime? In fact, that's an important distinction I, I try to draw, that there are, there are lots of things that are trying to tell people how to vote, who to support, um, maybe even how to think. And I'm interested in those um, writings and images and patriotic envelopes and all, which are really telling people how to behave. And that the idea is that citizenship is really a murky concept. Um, and citizenship in wartime is, you know, extremely um, unclear ground. And so there's lots of ways in which people are turning to, to this kind of material for guide. Well, the, uh, the subtitle of the book uh, really is a good one. Once you get into it, you see how that works. Uh, right. We're talking tonight with Matt Gallman. He's the author of Defining Duty in the Civil War, subtitle, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Home Front. We'll talk more when we come back in just a minute on more Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this, e- this evening with J. Matthew Gallman, author of Defining Duty in the Civil War, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Home Front. Uh, Matt, we were talking in the first segment about how what you're doing here is describing how Northerners figured out what what to do. Those those who didn't go off to war and stayed home uh, still wanted to appear patriotic. Uh, and one of the points you make throughout is it, it it's easier to tell people what not to do, and and you describe some of the kinds of people that you shouldn't be during wartime. Uh, can you give some examples of that? Organization in the book really does emerge out of the research, and I found myself thinking that there really are two kinds of messages that come out of prescriptive literature, um, and this applies to literature on how to be a young girl in the 1840s and so on, and it certainly applies during the war. And part of that is literature that is essentially, in one way or another, describing characters who we should dislike and how you, the reader, don't want to be like them. And that's in the form of fiction, but also wonderful cartoons, lots of great cartoons. Um, so, for instance, the examples I use is, is the, the whole notion of the, the shoddy aristocracy is one of my um, big themes. It's this idea that people who are profiting from the war and particularly profiting from the war illegitimately, are going to be criticized. And there's a lot of commentary criticizing them and lots of cartoons mocking them. And then there, there's also the, the people who kind of are oblivious during the war, they, who both men and women, who in one way or another are just silly. And there's a lot, especially cartoons, that I think they're mocking the people who are, are excessively foolish 
And I think that's a way of everyone else feeling pretty good about themselves. Um, and, and then the other big category is, is what I call the shoulder straps. Um, that's the term they used at the time. You know, shoulder strap refers to an officer, but it's also used in a mocking term for, for military frauds. Um, the best images, anybody who thinks about the Civil War, retail Civil War, is familiar with, you know, Willard's Hotel in Washington, D.C., uh, where Grant stayed in 64. Well, the, the bar in Willard's is a great place for guys to sit around talking about the war. And a lot of these guys are not even really soldiers. They just have fake uniforms. Or they technically are soldiers, but they never actually go to war. And that's a theme that, again, recurs over and over again. So you get sort of the, the silly people, you get the shoddy people, the shoddy profiteers, and you get the shoulders strapped frauds. And these are all types who the culture defines as bad citizens. The shoddy uh, aristocracy was, was particularly interesting because you point out that there are – someone's got to sell goods to the army for it to operate. It's not inherently a bad thing to be a war contractor, right. but it's obviously a bad thing to be a, a shoddy war contractor, to be selling – substandard goods that, that fall apart and hurt the soldiers and don't serve the cause. And you, you've, but what surprised me about your, your chapter here was that most of the criticism you cite of the, the shoddy aristocracy, as the, the press called them, was not so much aimed at people who sold substandard goods, but with people who upset the class order by becoming rich from war contracting. That's absolutely right. I mean, for starters, just to remind people, shoddy is a term that everyone knows, has a sense of what we mean by shoddy. But shoddy actually originates as a term for textile products that are made not by really weaving together materials, but just kind of by, by pressing them together so that you can make a textile that looks okay, but doesn't last very long. And thus, shoddy evolves into a term for materials sold during the war. It could be uniforms, it could be bad coffee, it could be tents. And so, originally, the term shoddy is used for people who are, for the material, that is, bad material. And there's and the first year of the war, there's a, there's a, a lot of corruption, and there's a lot of um, um, union investigation of corruption. But by the end of the first year, that's settled down a lot. And you end up now with a little bit of a public pushback against people who are just getting filthy rich off the war. But as you say, and this is something people tend to forget, the Civil War in the North is really fought, or really they're supplied by um, free market capitalists. That is to say, most, most of what is being used by soldiers is being produced by entrepreneurs. And so you can't very well decide as a nation that selling material to the government and making a profit is a bad thing. So it becomes a question of what, where do we draw the line? And, and as you say, I find, and this is, I am surprised by this, if you look at the popular culture, and again, I'm talking editorials, um, novels, short stories, 
many, many cartoons, the target tends to be poor people who have been poor, and mostly people who are Irish, who started before the war were, you know, running a small shop or something, and they got rich during the war. And so the target becomes people who are undeservingly rich. And it also becomes a way to reinforce ethnic stereotypes, class stereotypes, um, where the Irish are a target the way they were a target in the 1850s. Uh, in the book I mentioned, I guess in a footnote, that in a way the portraiture of this shiny aristocracy is like the old Beverly Hills television show. That is a kind of, that, if, you're, if people call that show, it's um, kind of very poor Appalachian folks who get really rich selling on oil and end up in Beverly Hills. Well, these Irish characters are repeatedly made fun of because they don't know how to be rich. They go to the opera and they look through the opera glasses in the wrong direction, through the wrong end of opera glasses. They, they buy expensive rings, but they've got their fat working class fingers and they can't wear the rings and on and on. So the real story is not that they're selling shoddy. They're no, it's no longer about shoddy. The real story is that they don't deserve to be rich. And what? the punch, sorry, oh, what I'm saying, the punch yeah, here is they, they, these people don't exist. It's not like there really was this class of dirt poor Irish immigrants who became filthy rich during the Civil War. Yet they exist in, the, in this um, cultural um, world. The, the the comparison to the Clampets of Beverly Hillbillies is great. Uh, the the characters in that you're quoting are people like Bridget Fitzshoddy. Uh, right. Before the war, she was you know poor washerwoman. Now uh, she's got a hyphenated name and she's going to the opera. But when you say they don't deserve to be rich, I I got more the impression that this is a, an expression of class uh, anxiety among people who are perhaps moving up the social economic ladder during the war, and it gives them comfort to make fun of this fictional Beverly Hillbillies class of Irish who don't really exist. Uh, but it's not that they don't deserve to be rich, they just don't know how to act with it. it it's not, not like they didn't earn their money any more than Jed Clampett is just lucky he found oil, but he's not, it's not that he didn't deserve it, he's not a bad guy, he's just a bumpkin. Yeah, I think that's true that that by the time, and this changes quickly during the war, by the time we get to the, the Bridgets, the Irish shoddy aristocracy, those stories almost never link their wealth to ill-gotten gains. It's mm-hmm. only that the, they, don't, they are not of the right class, in a sense. And yes, it, mm-hmm. it's class hostility and anxiety. Um, it's ethnic hostility and anxiety. It's mm-hmm. probably... Um, um, Catholic hostility anxiety, although that mm-hmm. rarely appears explicitly. And if you look, if you consider the shoddy discussion alongside the shoulder straps discussion and, and this sort of, this kind of silly people discussion, that I think all of these portraitures are so popular because they allow everyday folks including folks who are profiting from the war, including folks who are living perfectly fine 
They're going out to the theater. They're going to the opera. They're going out to dinner. They're not really sacrificing at all. And they can look in the mirror and say, you know, I may not be sacrificing, but I'm not Bridget Shoddy. Shoddy. And I think that this whole world of satire has this crucial cultural um, function in that it makes the vast majority of readers feel good about themselves. That, that's a really interesting thought that the, the, the silly people, what in a later generation would be called dumb blondes, uh, right. uh, allow the, the reader telling that joke or reading that cartoon to feel superior. The fake officers, I may be staying home, but at least I'm not, I'm not pretending to be an officer. So that's the, the service here. Um, one of the things that, that struck me as I was reading is you, you have a lot of cartoons in the book and they're, they're just wonderful. They, they really convey as no other source can, you know, what the people were reading at the time and between the drawings and the dialogue, they're still, they're pretty funny actually. Uh, but one thing that struck me was that the captions for the cartoons often repeat what's in the cartoon and then the text repeats what's in the caption and is in the cartoon and I know sometimes authors don't have full control over captioning in their their uh, works, but it, it it put me in mind of the National Lampoon in the late seventies, and uh, I'm guessing if, if my BA was 1980, and I saw on the website yours is 79, so I'm guessing we're the same generation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, National Lampoon used to have a, a column of Professor Kenilworth, which I don't know if you recall. Uh, Professor Kenilworth explains the joke or dissects the <laughs> joke, and they would just quote some old shaggy dog joke everyone's heard, and then they'd have this lengthy, dense column in which a professor would go over in detail, removing any trace of humor by the time he was done. It was a meta joke, <laughs> a joke about jokes, uh, and and I'm not now your book does not do that. I don't mean to be saying that, but it put me in mind that. Uh, uh, the captions sometimes tell us what's in the uh, the cartoon that's right there in front of us, but the cartoons are great. They are really uh, uh, evocative of what what people are thinking at this time. Well, I think it's certainly true what you're saying that, and um, whether it's a virtue or not is a is I guess a subject of a discussion. But the cap I did write fairly long captions, and UNC let me keep them fairly long, which. I was joking to a friend that I was pursuing a, a sort of postmodern form of book where you could actually read the whole book by only reading the captions. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, to be honest with you, when you write captions and you've got images, you're never really sure precisely how clear the image is going to be. True. So, I'm, you know, the actual, I think they did a really wonderful job in the reproductions. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. In my captions, I usually do tell the reader what, I think they need to know about the cartoon, even though the cartoon is right there in front of them. Um, and then I try, and then I try to link that to the larger arguments. Um, and always the argument, thinking that you know, a reader can choose to, to, um, you know, read captions or not. But um, but I do think they are they are part of the story, as opposed to books that are illustrated, but the illustrations are um, kind of a, play a secondary role in, in the book. Um, these images are pretty central to what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, uh, and I think they succeed. I mean, they really do show the story. Um, 
uh, as to what people are, are thinking and what they're reading. And it was interesting to learn how many of these magazines uh, really come into their heyday during the Civil War, that uh, uh, things like Harper's Weekly really just got started in the, the year or two before the war. Yeah, you know, this is something that was in the research, and um, I was sort of not aware of, is that, that, that we sometimes talk about, in other senses, you know, what would have happened if the South was seceded in 1840 or 1850 or back in 1832. And, and, and that conversation usually centers on the nature of the populations and the nature of the economies and whether or not the South would have been better off fighting this war a generation earlier. But in fact, if you look at just the brief window of time before the Civil War, there's an awful lot that happens culturally. Not only do we have the, the uh, explosion of the, the two big illustrated weeklies, but you also have a bunch of other magazines that are formed, and about five of the most important humorists in the 19th century began their careers just as the war is beginning, or right before the war. And, uh, and the postal services. The postal services are much more efficient by 1861 than they were even 10 years earlier. So all these, so all these things kind of conspire to create a war culture that happens during the four years of war that, that would not have existed in the 1850s. Um, certainly the culture responds to the war, but a lot of what happens here was just get going, getting going as the war began. And, and again, that's something you don't think of ordinarily. Another thing that people don't typically think of, well, I, I, let me say differently, people are thinking more and more about it, uh, is division within the North. Uh, Jonathan White was on the show recently with his, uh, we talked about uh, Union soldiers and their divided vote, and he challenges the orthodoxy that most soldiers were uh, unreservedly for Lincoln and for the Republican Party. And uh, just as he shows that you could be pro-war but anti-Republican or anti-Lincoln, uh, you show that people can be pro-war, but they don't have to volunteer and go fight. They, they can support the war and feel they're supporting the war fully, even though they don't volunteer to serve. Uh, that there is not uh, an overwhelming pressure. Let me put it this way. The... the, the the idea that if, if you don't fight, you must be a slacker, you must be a shirker, uh, right. which may have prevailed more, and I'm talking out of school here, in, in Britain in the First World War, uh, or other societies and other wars, you show that's not really the case here. And We just have, give us a quick 20-second version, and then we'll take a break and then talk about this in detail. Yeah, I think, for starters, I think John Wayne's book is great, for instance, but um, yes, the one of the things I'm trying to say is that we tend to think in terms of slightly cartoonish binaries here. So if you're a Democrat, you're a copperhead, you're treasonous. If you're pro-war, then you're kind of fanatically pro-war. And, what, and as you say, what I'm trying to say is that I think there's a large swath of society who if you stop them on the street or you went to their club, or you went to their factory, and said, so what do you think of this war? They'd say, I hope we win. And yet, that doesn't necessarily drive them to enlist, nor is society insisting that they enlist. 
I probably more than twenty seconds, but there you go. That that works just right. That and that's and and the question of what those people do and how they justify it to themselves and how society sees them uh, is is the heart of the second half of the book. And we'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. We're talking tonight with Matt Gallman, author of Defining Duty in the Civil War. Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Homefront. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich uh, talking tonight with Matt Gallman, author of Defining Duty in the Civil War, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Home Front. We've been talking about how a prescriptive literature arose uh, really organically in the form of uh, cartoons and pamphlets and magazine articles and uh, all kinds of uh, bits of literature that might be out there anyway to tell Northerners, don't be like that guy, don't be a, a... someone who pretends to be an officer, don't be ignorant of the war and act, ask silly questions as if nothing was happening. Uh, don't be above your station, even if you make a lot of money in the war. Uh, don't do these things. But it didn't tell, well, what we haven't talked about is did it tell people what to do uh, when it came time to decide whether to enlist or not? Uh, I think the number you, you cited was about 40% of the eligible uh male population of the North ended up serving in the war at some point or another. Uh, the other 60%, they were not all, all degraded and humiliated and hit at home. They carried on their lives more or less normally. Uh, 
How did they do that? Well, I mean, for starters, I think the 40% is probably a pretty good estimate. We have to keep in mind, though, that that's going to include people who serve for very short amounts of time and so on. So it's probably a high estimate. Um, and and I, I, I speak of this. I, I, I don't tend to spend a lot of energy kind of criticizing other scholars and anything I write, but mm-hmm. I think that one of the, the recurring themes in lots of home front scholarship is a world of, of wives and mothers left at home. And I think that probably two-thirds of those soldiers probably were not married. And that most of, even of the remaining, probably many, most probably didn't have children, just based on uh, various data we have, including ages. Um, so, in my view, there's lots of messages sent to these young men in 1861 and 1862 saying, you know, we'd love for you to enlist. We would like you to enlist. But... What I'm surprised at is very little of that, very few of those messages are framed in terms of duty. That is to say, you are a citizen, therefore you must enlist. Um, it is not, I mean, I mentioned in my conclusion that, you know, this is not John Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. The, um, it's, it's phrased quite differently. Men are encouraged to enlist for all sorts of good reasons, but they're allowed not to enlist, and that seems to be okay. And, and you, and you give... You say, the, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. As you say, the, the majority don't enlist. If you start breaking it down by age, and I'm using other people's data here, of, of the youngest cohort, we're looking at closer to 55 or so percent who, who enlist. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot. But once you get into even the mid to late 20s, the percentage you enlist is dropping precipitously. And I think it's because the society says, yes, we need soldiers, but some people are going to have family. Some people are going to have work obligations. Some people are simply going to say, you know, I don't think I'd be a good soldier. And none of this is inherently a problem as long as you're not a hypocrite, and as long as you're not dishonest. And, and that thread runs throughout. You, you cite a number of wartime novels that are, are now long forgotten, but were apparently quite popular, uh, in which you have characters who are uh, men in the North deciding uh, if they should go. That's not the main point. Uh, but there are some characters who are soldiers, some who are civilians, and there's no correlation where the civilian who stays home is the bad guy and the guy who enlists is the good guy. Uh, you have people running off to enlist because their heart was broken or they're in a bad relationship or they're just going to, I'll show you, I'll go enlist. Uh, nothing to do with duty. And then you've got others who don't enlist and end up getting the girl and being the hero of the book. Yeah, I, I, just, I was really struck that by that. I'm sorry, I interrupted. I'm- I, I said I was really struck by that. Well, I mean, I have to tell you that this surprises me. And, you know, it, it may well be the case that nobody alive has read more home front novels and short stories at this point <laughs> than I have. I mean, I, I could think of one or two candidates of other scholars. but that, And what I find really amazing is if you're going to write a romantic novel set during the Civil War in the North, 
yeah, you need guys, but you need male characters. But I would have thought that if you, even in that very much a romance, just barely a military story, I would have thought that if you're going to set it in 1863, your hero would have some good reason not to be a soldier. You know, he would have, um, I don't know, he'd, he would have had a, uh, you know, a club foot or something that allowed him to be manly and masculine but not able to be a soldier. But that doesn't happen. In fact, uh, one novel in particular, which I really like, the, uh, one of the Henry Morford novels, the, our hero is a working-class guy. He's a military age. He's very energetic. He even at one point stops a runaway carriage. And he is our hero. He gets the girl. We like him. Meanwhile, in the same novel, we have a, um, a guy who is a war profiteer who is also a sexual miscreant. He tries to seduce um, a married woman. We also have a guy who is a, a classic example of uh, shoulder straps, a guy who is claiming that he's enlisting a regiment. He, he claims to be a colonel, but he refuses to go to war, and instead he sits around and drinks. So those characters are the bad guys, but the good guy's not a soldier. And at no point in this massively long novel is there a conversation about, gee, maybe I should be a soldier. And all these men, and that happens over and over again. And, and it's and not a political a, decision. Um, I'm mattering on anyways. Another thing that really surprises me, um, and this book is full of things that surprised me that I was happy to share, is that repeatedly men in short stories and novels who are inclined to enlist, who think I would like to enlist, decide not to enlist when the woman in their life, maybe a mother, maybe a fiancé, maybe a wife, says, I don't want you to enlist. And it seems clear, and this happens over and over again, in a way that I was surprised at, that in this gender conversation, the inclinations of the woman trumps the patriotic impulse of the man. And that I didn't see coming. Yeah, it, it, it's presented favorably. The man is not a bad guy for making that decision, or he's not right. a milk toast for making that decision. Precisely. Uh, that to do what your, the woman in your life says is a manly act. Now, the messages to women are the most complicated because there's an awful lot of patriotic message to women which says the most patriotic thing you can do is basically let your man go. And that's for mothers as well as wives and sweethearts. And not only let your man go, but don't start crying till we leave. So that's the recurring thing. Mm-hmm. But even though the message is that's the way women should behave, women who are readers got a lot of examples of women who don't behave that way. You know, they may say, you know, I really should let him go, but I just can't. And they don't they're not treated badly by the author. The reader doesn't come away thinking, oh, she's a bad person. It, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it surprised me throughout. Let me ask a, a generational and authorial question. Um, again, as I was reading this and, and noting our ages are, are similar, 
I grew up uh, while the Vietnam War was underway, and I was in elementary school at the time, uh, and then middle school, and it was always in my consciousness that my grandfather was in the First World War, my dad was in World War II, uh, eventually it'll be my turn, and this war is happening while I'm getting older and closer to draft age. Uh, and then the war ended, and, and the draft was over. By the time I was old enough, uh, it was no longer, no longer had to register. Uh, but that shaped a lot of my thinking about about what my life would be and, and what war was about. Did, did that influence you? Do you think being of that generation made it interesting to look at what do men do who don't go to the war? I hear what you're saying. I would say that that background, and they say my age is pretty similar. I, I, you know, I missed the draft, and at the time, I, you know, I don't even think it really crossed my mind. Even though, it had, you know, in, in retrospect, it wasn't that far off in the grand scheme no. of things. Um, and that certainly shaped my thinking about studying the Civil War, um, and particularly. And in my early work on the home front, I felt as a child that, you know, there was a great anti-war movement. Um, and, you know, and, but on a, in another sense, the, the country was engaged in this, you know, this horrible war. And yet, life went on at home. Mm-hmm. And, and that always struck me, that... You know, if the the television had its comedies, and yeah, you'd, there's a, there was a little bit of countercultural critique in the mass media, certainly. But you know, but there's also a lot of daily life that seems unaffected, and that I think that shaped why I looked at Philadelphia during the war and found a lot of life going on. Um, I'm not sure that as I'm writing this book, those thoughts recurred as much to me. You know, maybe mm-hmm. it's because I've been doing the Civil War, you know, for really since the mid-'80s. Um, uh, you know, but, but I, I do think, though, that the, the, there's a critical observation here about what the government is expecting from citizens and also taking from citizens. And that's hugely different, that even the draft is not really a... of the Civil War is is not really intended to take draftees and send them to Vietnam, you know, the war, like Vietnam was. Mm-hmm. The draft in the Civil War was not, was really intended to encourage an art, um, enlistment and, mm-hmm. and recruiting. And the, 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 the extent to which the federal government really imposed its will on individual citizens during the Civil War is a lot less than people realize, I think. Well, you quote the uh, the, the piece that Lincoln wrote, uh, sort of a meditation on the, the conscription, right. where he talks about all, why people might not have, why men might not have enlisted up to this point, and he says there's all kinds of good reasons for it. Uh, I mean, the contrast with, with Kennedy's quote you, you gave earlier, asked out what your country can do for you, uh, that's not the sentiment that we see here. From Lincoln on down, the government is not saying, you must go, you owe it to us to go, but rather, you should think about it, 
you should take your chance fairly with everyone else. You shouldn't be dishonest. But if you have a better reason, you know, a higher uh, obligation to your family, uh, that's okay. And that's quite surprising. And, and actually, what I would say, especially in terms of the draft, but even before the draft, I would say that the cultural um, expectation is that a good man thinks hard about the decision. And if he has thought hard about the decision and decides that it is best for him to stay home, that's okay. But if he doesn't think hard about the decision, he's frivolous, like these swells I write about. Um, mm-hmm. If he's frivolous, that's bad. If he's dishonest, that's bad. Okay, now you skip ahead. Now you've got a federal draft. And a couple messages are clear. One clear message is a good citizen obeys the rules. So that means when the draft enroller comes to take names, a good citizen gives them his name. And if the draft enroller drafts you, then you don't run to Canada. If you run to Canada, you're a bad citizen. We'll make fun of you. If you, uh, un- you don't say, unfortunately, Matt, uh, but one of the rules on this show, unfortunately, is they cut us off at 58 minutes and we're right there. Uh, so we have to stop here, even though there's much more to talk about in this fascinating <laughs> book. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the show and joining us this evening. Okay. I'm sorry for going on too long. Okay. Not a problem at all. Listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Defining Duty in the Civil War, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Homefront by J. Matthew Gallman. It's uh, an eye-opening book, and I I hope you'll get it, read it, enjoy it, uh, contribute to Heritage Hall. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.